0: part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You open your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be starting there verse six. Again, looking at that, we see uh, in this time when uh, pretty much the Israelites are uh, the Jewish people, They were divided into two kingdoms by this point of Jewish history. And uh, the Assyrians, these very uh, wicked people, these very godless people, were putting people into captivity. And so there was always this threat kind of hanging over the Jewish people at this time that at any point in time that they would be another one of those that would be brought into a land of exile and that they would become captive. And that's really the setting of Isaiah chapter 9, that in this dark, dark period of Jewish life, that God promised that there would be a light that would come. Now, when we grasp that, it's kind of hard for us to kind of erase from our mind all the things that we know that have already transpired. It's hard for us to to not think back 2,000 years that Christ came and, and that this has been fulfilled. But you can only imagine in the Jewish mindset that it was hard to grasp Number one, that how this promise could be fulfilled because they were under this attack from the Assyrians. But number two, just hard because it was not happening right in front of them. There was going to be 800 years between this prophecy and this promise until it finally came fulfilled. In many ways, it is similar, though, to the promise of Christ's second advent. Many of us have grown up understanding that Christ not only came one time, but he's going to come again. And the Bible makes that very clear. We look in the New Testament. We begin to see that there's these prophecies. And yet we're in this waiting period. And it's been more than 800 years. So there's a part of this that we do understand, that we have to believe by faith, just like the Jewish people. But having that mindset, having that background, is so instrumental of understanding what God told Isaiah to give to the people And how that would bring them hope, light in the darkness, a a glimmer of hope, even though they did not see that hope realized in its fullness yet. And so this morning, as we open up to this word, uh, we're going to come upon this second title of Christ, this promise of this child, this promise of a mighty God. Now, that wasn't hard for the Jewish people to conceive. They really did think that their God was mighty. They had seen the work of God before. And in their mindset, they didn't even pronounce the name of God because they did see him in his holiness and in his might. And so there was a proper fear of the Lord, if you want to say that, that the Jewish people had. And, uh, and so that part of it wasn't all that hard to conceive, that God was a mighty God. What was hard to conceive is that this child that would have come, this Messiah... Would be mighty God. I don't know about you. We talked about it last week. But there's a part of our brain. That just can't quite wrap around. How can you be fully God. And fully man at the same time. How can you be 100% of two different things. And yet that is the miracle of what has happened. And it is the promise that God has fulfilled. Mighty God. I, I don't know about you. But do you like. Rags to riches stories. Do you like hearing the stories about people that kind of started off very meager means and all of a sudden maybe they made a right decision here or they invented something and all of a sudden, you know, they come into this astronomical wealth. You know, the people like a Sam Walton that started off as just a normal guy, a 5 and 10, and all of a sudden, you know, there's Walmart and they're all over the world. Or Bill Gates who starts up a company in his garage and then all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of over, you know, worldwide and it's in every nation. Well, I like those kind of stories. I, I think that's why, anybody ever watched Shark Tank? You know, you, you watch it because you're going, you know, there's, there's two reasons. Number one, it's intriguing to us, these people, to say, okay, what a novel idea. I wish I would have thought of that. The other part that's this is so intriguing is because we really do think, what if that was us? What if we were the one that came up with the idea and we could be the next millionaire, maybe even that billionaire? Let me tell you the story uh, about such a guy long before Shark Tank came along. The guy's name is Jay Sorensen. He was in Portland, Oregon. In 1991, he found himself without a job. I mean, he had a job. He was laid off, and he had a job uh, in real estate, but he really wasn't all that good. By his own admittance, he wasn't that good at real estate. He was uh, wondering how he was going to provide for his family. He was uh, taking his kids to, to school that morning. He had stopped to get some coffee. It was really extremely hot coffee. And uh, on the way there, he, he kind of burned his hand because it spilled over a little bit because he had to hold it with just a couple fingers. You know, when you've had that really hot coffee in the container. And he thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if you know I could hold on to this with a little bit more firm grip? And have you ever seen those little sleeves that go on? I mean, certainly we, we have them all the time. He invented that. He said he came up with the idea of this java jacket. Okay? When you have really hot coffee, let's just get this corrugated cardboard. Let's slip it on the outside. And so he took what little money he had left, I mean, down to the thousands, and he produced some of these models. He went into a coffee shop to talk to to them about, hey, would you like to buy some of these? He he went ahead and got the patent and all that, and it took every dollar that he had. And he went in there, and as he was waiting, uh, he he was reading some things there, and he found out there was going to be a trade show of coffee I mean, this is up in Oregon. It's near Starbucks and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, just it's coffee world up there. And, uh, and he read about it and he said, well, I'd love to go to this, but I don't have the money. Well, finally the manager comes out and he says he loves this idea. And uh, he says, okay, I'll buy this. Do you need a check? And he said, well, I'd love a check right now. So he went ahead and got that. That paid him to be able to go and then to go to this trade show. And in that trade show, uh, there was over 3,500 people, uh, owners of businesses that came up. His wife became the CEO. That was a smart move. And, and then he became, you know, kind of the production manager. They began to do this. And what started out is just this kind of failed attempt, this frustrating attempt, all of a sudden, Java Jacket is now all over the world. They have sold billions, and the guy's doing pretty well for himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I like stories like that. Because, again, one, we like to see happy things happen to people. The other one, there is that little part of this where you can call it greed, you can call it desire, you can call it whatever, that says, you know, I wonder if I could come up with an idea like that. We love rags to riches stories. At the same time, sometimes we find ourselves very heartbroken over those stories that go from riches to rags. Whether that would be a politician, whether that would be a former athlete, sometimes we see little kids that grew up in the movie industry, and they were cute, and they made their millions of dollars, and then we see them in their teenage years, or when they hit their 20-somethings, and their life is just void of life. They're just kind of a walking wreck. We say, man, remember this little kid? He was in that movie, that Christmas movie. Now look at him. And we see those people that had some real success, and they had the riches, and fame, and Now we see that their life is really a shamble. We don't like those stories that much. Because we see how evil this world can be. And nobody would certainly want that, would they? I mean, if we had our pick, let's go from rags to riches, nobody would ever say, okay, I want to go from riches to rags. And yet there was one who purposely selected that. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. Holy God, leaving the throne room of heaven where every angel is adoring him, every attention is upon him, giving him glory 24-7, and he purposely leaves that. This morning as we begin to, to look into this name, mighty God, look again at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Here's the prophecy. 800 years before it would actually come into being. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Again, just so that we have our theology correct, that first part, a a child is born, talking about the humanity, he's 100% human. He's born. It talks about, to us a son is given. talks about the deity of Christ there. And so we see, even back in this prophecy, this prophecy of 100% man, 100% deity, 100% God, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. We said that last week. It's actually two nouns. It's not an adjective and a noun. It's actually two. He is wonderful, and he's a counselor. So the fact that he's a counselor, and he's wise, and he knows how to give direction, the fact that he is wonderful, oh, what a great mixture that is. You go to a counselor, do you want a Wonderful Counselor? You know, one that is truly wonderful and in nature, apart from his counsel. Yes, you want that kind of counselor. And here's the promise that we have. And then we come upon this second title, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 800 years before it ever came into reality, there was this prophecy that God, Mighty God himself, would clothe himself in flesh and that he would come and dwell among his people. Because that was good news to the Jewish nation. As they would look out and and maybe even see the Assyrian army or those around them at that very moment. This was good news. That holy God loved them and that there was a promise that there would be an answer to this captivity, to this exile. To these that would come against them, these oppressors that would come against them. And so they were encouraged. And then they waited. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. What a surprise that they would have to wait 800 years, but that wasn't the biggest surprise. When the prophecy came into being, and and the way that God fulfilled this was different from, I, I believe, any one of their minds, probably even Isaiah's mind could ever begin to conceive They were wanting a warrior king. Why? Because they felt that they were very much being oppressed and that they could see real soldiers and real armies around them. The Assyrian army this time. Other times it was the Babylonian army. Other times it was another army. And these people would oppress against them. And so in this oppression, they said, Okay, we need a mighty God, but we need him to come. If he's going to come in human form, we need him to be a warrior. Well, I don't know about you and your life, but... When I come up against some of the things that oppress against me, that's what I want is a warrior. I want somebody that has shield ready and, you know, sword ready to to, to come drawn and ready to fight. But what they had waited for for 800 years uh, did not come with a sword, uh, so to speak. Didn't come with a shield, so to speak, and certainly did not come with some powerful armor, so to speak. Became as a little baby. This warrior king, not born in a palace, not born in a a castle, but born in a cave. Exactly different. I mean, maybe 180 degrees different from anything that they would have expected. Instead of waging a war against their oppressors, this mighty God began to wage war against the oppression of sin. Now in one way the big picture, that's what we want God to fight, right? Sin in our lives. And yet if there is a really a troublesome army that's out there If there's a problem in your life right now, and let's say that it is the finances. Let's say that it is a relationship. Let's say that it is a broken family. As much as you want to be very spiritual and say, okay, God, thank you that you took care of my sin. Isn't there a part of us in this immediate mindset that says, okay, but God, here's my real problem. I I realize I'm a sinner. I know I need your forgiveness. But God, will you fix my marriage right now? Will you help me find a way to pay this bill for next month so that we're not kicked out of our house? I mean, that's the human dilemma that we can be as spiritual as we want to be, guys, and we can spiritualize things away, and we can sound all churchy, and yet when dilemma and oppression really comes into our life and it takes an active form, we do want a mighty warrior to come in, sword drawn, ready to fight. This mighty God didn't talk about building an earthly kingdom. That's what the Jewish people wanted, but it's a kingdom. Kind of like when Solomon was around or David was around. You can pick. You know, Solomon or David. We'll just take either one of those. No, this mighty God who came, who clothed himself in flesh. He didn't talk about a a present kingdom, an earthly kingdom. He kept on talking about this eternal kingdom. In the most impressive rags, uh, richest to rags story ever, this mighty God left the throne of heaven to come clothe himself in flesh, so that you and I can have eternal life. The theological term is incarnation. Literally in the Latin it means becoming flesh. In this case, God becoming man. Taking on flesh. God still 100% God, 100% deity, and at the same time 100% man. Not, hear this carefully, not a man who was godly, or a God who is manly. Be very, very careful. Because there's a lot of false thought out there, uh, apart from Christianity, traditional conservative Christianity, biblical Christianity, that will say, well, you know, this Jesus, he was a man, and he was very, very godly. And there will be others that will say, you know, yes, he was God, but he was, he was kind of very, very manly. That was the contention in the whole New Testament. Even after the resurrection of Christ, that was usually the debate, whether it was the Gnostics or other ones that were around, that they always debated about this nature of Christ. That was the main kind of tugging place. Because they struggled like you struggle and I struggle. How can you be a hundred percent man and a hundred percent God? Guys, this isn't just for us to have theological fada. This is the very foundation of the promise that mighty God would clothe himself in flesh and dwell among us. All of Christianity, please get this, all of Christianity falls apart instantly if he is not fully God and fully man. It is that fundamental. It is that foundational. We cannot have a man who is pretty godly and we cannot have a God who is pretty manly. We have to have the God-man. I don't know about you, but my mind would have never conceived that. I, I don't think about impossibilities like that. If the oppressor is there in my life, I just want help. Aren't you kind of really simplistic in your theology? When the oppressor is at the door, knocking for the bills to be paid, for the marriage to be repaired, for this or whatever, the the cancer to go away. It's amazing, folks, at those times that that we've become very practical in in our theology, very practical in our beliefs. And at that point, here's the temptation, guys. Here's the temptation. At that point, we would take a man who is godly or a God who is manly if he can fix our dilemma. God says, okay, I'm not here just to fix this dilemma, just to pay the bill, just to fix the marriage, just to cure the cancer. He can do all of those things. The oppressor that he comes against when he comes as this God-man is the oppression of sin, that which separates us from a holy God. God does not make light of your marriage. He does not make light of your finances. He does not make light of your illnesses. He makes much of that. And we'll see that at the end. And yet, He will never, He will never so persuade you to fix a present problem over an eternal situation. He would never, He loves you way too much. To sell out just to fix for this day, for this week, and yet an eternity that would be in separation from Him. Because you, you had a God who fixed your problem, of the marriage, the finances, or the sickness. But you didn't trust that God to really come against that which you really had oppression with, that really came against you, and that is our sin problem. John fourteen nine. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. Because up to this point, remember, there's three main ways that people knew God. They knew God through his works, That is, they saw him do things like take the Red Sea and divide it in the open so that those Israelites could walk across on dry land. So they saw God in works. They saw God in word. They didn't have a Bible like you and I have today. You know, that was kind of bound up exactly like that. But they did have the Word of God. God instructed Moses to write down, and they did have the readings and the writings. And so they could go. The Psalms that we've been looking at, those were songs that they would sing. And they didn't say, "Oh, yeah, here's the Bible. And they didn't have chapters and verses. But they had the Word of God. So they had the works of God. They had the the Word of God. and, And they had the world. That's what Paul says in the New Testament. He says, look... If you don't even have these other things, you can go out there and know that all this just didn't happen. That's God's revelation up to this point. There's great witness, and yet here's what would happen. He closed himself in flesh. Mighty God, holy God, closed himself in flesh and dwells among us. The king of heaven leaves his throne, and he comes here. Jesus said this, John fourteen nine. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That sparked a little bit of controversy when he said that. There, there were some there, Jewish leaders, uh, you know, that, uh, hey, 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 I don't know that, you know, you don't look like this Messiah. Didn't you come from Galilee? What good comes out of that place? Didn't you come from, you know, aren't you a carpenter, son? And yet you say that you're the Messiah. Even his brothers and sisters, the, the word tells us, did not have belief until after his resurrection. And yet here's this prophecy being fulfilled. Colossians 1.15, here's what Paul said. He that is Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Even his name, Emmanuel, means what? God with us. God, you're not just there. See, one of the hardest things, maybe, is to understand that God really would dwell among us. I mean, a lot of times, generals don't go to the front lines. They kind of stay back there. And even if they have that fighting spirit... The other commanders say, hey, look, you know, we need you. So you stay back here in kind of this very protected place, this ivory tower. And you can watch the war going on from this ivory tower. And you can kind of conduct the troops left, right, forward, advance, retreat. That is not the God that we have. Amen. He's not from an ivory tower. He doesn't look at your life and say, okay, forward, advance, retreat, troops move. Come on, angels, some more angels right over here. We see kind of this left flank kind of you know, showing some sign of, of penetration here. Let's get some more angels. This holy God, this mighty God that was prophesied, is not a God who sits up in an ivory tower distant from you but he walked among us and he dwelt among us and he was on the front lines. This firstborn of all creation. doesn't mean that he was created. It just means that he is a way of talking about the eternal nature of Christ. But the bearing question then is is if we accept all this to be fact and true, that really this mighty God, that Christ is this mighty God, then then it begs this question from believer and I would say even from skeptic. Why? Why? there's a very good reason why you and I like the rags to riches stories and meet all those needs hey now we got enough for retirement i mean there's things that make sense when we kind of want to go from the rags to the riches but why would anybody ever want to go from riches to rags why would everybody go from a throne room to a cradle why would they go for it was 24/7 Worship, pure worship of the angels to a place where you would be not only not worshipped, but you would be questioned and even abused. Why? Paul answers this in Second Corinthians. You know, the Corinthians, they were kind of that Greek mindset. They thought of themselves as being pretty wise. They were kind of philosophical type people. If you sat down with the Corinthians, they would not just ask, you know, questions. They would always ask the why questions. And they usually probably would have some answers because they were just that Greek kind of mindset and they liked to kind of sit around and kind of chew about the why. So it's not surprising to me at all that God would so enlighten the Apostle Paul that as he's dealing with new Christians in the Corinthian church, these very philosophical type people that were asking this question, why would God, holy God, ever come and clothe himself in flesh And yet he gives an answer to those Corinthians, perhaps to that question of why. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, in in modern society, you know, uh, a lot of times if they have a mic and they're kind of going back and forth, you drop the mic saying, okay, that's done. This is one of those verses, guys. You could just drop the mic. I could just be quiet at this point because this is a powerful statement. And listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying. God, why would you clothe yourself in flesh? Why would you come and and, and put on flesh and dwell among us? He says, for one reason. So I could show you grace. Why? Because I was rich and yet I became poor. Why? So that you who are poor could become rich. He's not talking about money. He's talking about relationship with the Holy Father, with God himself. This mighty God did come, but he did not come to wage war against temporary enemies, whether it's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, finances, relationship problems, or health problems. I'm not saying that he does not address those things. We, we have every rich, richness in Christ Jesus But he did not come to wage war against those things. He he came to wage war, but it's against our true enemy. And that true enemy, guys, is our sin, our rebellion, what you and I inherited from Adam and Eve. That is the enemy. And he comes to wage war against that. Of this, the scripture speaks loudly. Let let me give you four or five here. Luke nineteen ten. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Loss is the condition. Not that some preacher came up with it. He said, okay, you're lost. Why are you lost if sin is in your life? If you do not have the forgiveness of sin, you're, you're considered a lost person. We go on and we see it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full uh, acceptance. Okay? It's always important when somebody, if they're about to say something, if they kind of lead into that, hey, here's something trustworthy. They are either full of themselves or they're full of truth. So it comes up to you. Or they have authority. If my dad would have said when I was 15 years old, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Even in that rebellious mindset of a 15-year-old, I would have said, okay, I think I should probably listen right here. That's being pretty serious. Whatever follows this is going to be pretty important. So Paul sets it up and he says, this is trustworthy. This is ready to, you know, it deserves full acceptance. And then what does he say? Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Well, I just don't like to think of myself like that. You know, I know I'm not the best person in the world. I can certainly see people around me that are a little bit better, but I'm not the worst person in the world either then you don't get the concept of sin, guys. He's not grading out on this kind of floating schedule. He's not grading on the curve. Those that are kind of a little bit more good and a little bit less good. We have one problem. It's what I call big S sin, not just your daily sins. I mean, we all have pride and worry, jealousies, greed. All of us have that. But it's that big S sin, that is the sin nature that Christ comes in and really is described here. And that's why Paul said, even though he's the most prolific writer in the New Testament, he truly, none of us would want to go kind of shoulder to shoulder spiritually with Paul, would you? And yet he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. Why? Because he understood sin. Big S sin. He gets it. My problem wasn't just this sin. My problem is my sin nature. I have a bent against you, God. I want to be independent from you. I don't want to bow down to you. I want to be my own God. I want it my way. And Paul realized that about himself. Now, if Paul could realize that, how much more you and I can realize that, grasp that, that's the dilemma. In Matthew, it said this way, Matthew 1, 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 1 John 3, 5. I love 1 John. By this time, oldest Christian alive, I would think. I don't know that there's an older Christian alive when, when John writes this. He's the granddaddy of all Christians at this time, uh, his contemporaries have passed away. He's old. Some would say that he's as old as 90 years old. That was something, that's something today. That was something really back then. And so I love the writings of First John because they have this perspective still under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's still God's Word. But it ha- you can see the seasoning. You can see the maturity, the fullness of the writings of John by this point of his life. And look what he says, First John 3, 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him was no sin. It sounds rather simplistic. And yet John in all of his wisdom writing now as a senior citizen of Christianity says guys, you want me to boil it down for you? You want me to get down to nuts and bolts? What's really important? Hey, there, there it is. He takes away your sin and in him was no sin. He was the perfect man. The only perfect man. No ivory tower. Mighty God, clothing himself in flesh and dwelling among us. I think that he got colds. I know he got hungry. So I I don't know that he really got colds. Did he ever get the flu? Are you sure that he ever? I, I don't know. It doesn't say. And Jesus went to the Stock in the box so that he could feel a little bit better before feeding the 5,000. It doesn't say that. It does say that everything that we go through that he went through, he made himself open to that, except for sin. We know that he got hungry. We know that he got tired. We know that he wept. I imagine maybe he got sick. Why? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. been to a funeral lately. Amazing difference to walk in. I've done so many hundreds of funerals over the years. Been blessed to do most of those of believers or at least we had the the most thought that they would be a believer. And so there was hope in that room. But there's been a few times, guys, that I've entered a room and you could tell that there was not hope in that room. And the darkness of death had come. And the people, it wasn't just that they were crying over Aunt Susie. It wasn't just that they lost Grandpa Jack. They had lost hope. Because there wasn't this, this presence. There wasn't this spirit. There wasn't this understanding That there is one who has come, a mighty God himself, and he has waged war. Did he wage war about my temporary problems? No, about my eternal problem. And he came and he fixed that once and for all. That is, I would believe in him, that he died for my sins and he rose again on the third day, and now he resides in heaven, ever interceding for me until his return on that day. Then there's hope in that room, there's still sadness. One of my favorite verses, we mourn. We just don't mourn as those who have no hope. That's Advent. That's the waiting. It's hope. Even in dark times, it's that the light is coming. That's why we celebrate Advent. That's why we, we light candles. Because there may be darkness, but we have been promised hope. And we may not have seen hope fulfilled. We may not have seen the, the entirety of that light. But we know by faith that it it's come. And how do we know that? By the testimony of the Word. By the testimony of His very Spirit. And then just think about it. I mean, just want to get really pragmatic, guys. What king would leave His throne to come here if there was not something that was so worth accomplishing? Mighty God. Playing in a manger. Can you play that song, please? We're going to end this morning. The altar is open. You can come and pray. You can just sit and worship. You can sing along. It's a beautiful song, a beautiful song to, to close us. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.